This is the What Now Podcast. I had kind of an identity crisis because I didn't know what experiences were authentic Heidi and which ones were manic Heidi and depressed Heidi. I had a really hard time figuring out who my true self was in the context of that illness. We learned that the way to control my deepest depressions was to eliminate all of my mania. And mania isn't completely fabulous all the time, but there are some really awesome perks, <laughs> especially to a person who experiences a lot of depression and feels so low and dragging and sad all the time. Mania is happy and energetic and productive. So that has been a little bit hard for me to adapt to, losing that piece of myself, but eliminating the lows has been so helpful because I don't have bouts of suicidal thoughts. I don't think that that's the only way out. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Heidi Bartle, author of When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. Heidi shares how to discuss depression with young, adolescent, and adult children in a productive and healthy way. Heidi also shares how to enlist needed help both inside and outside of the home for support during depressive moments. Her perspective is informative and empowering for those who suffer with mental illness or live with someone who does. Today, I am here with Heidi Bartle, who recently published a book titled, When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression, about a mother with depression and how she was able to share her experience and challenges with her children. So welcome, Heidi. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you today. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So this is an important topic. Depression hits a lot of people, especially mothers. I know I had postpartum depression with my son and had seasonal bouts of depression throughout my life. So it's an important topic for us to unpack today and talk about. But I want to understand what inspired you to write a book about depression from a mother's perspective. Well, I experienced depression starting in high school. And on and off through college and my young mothering years. But after my last baby, it was impossible to ignore and I needed to get treatment. So I struggled through the process of seeking help, reaching out. And I was sitting with my therapist one day, crying to her about everything that was wrong in my life. And she said that I really needed to talk to my kids about my depression. I thought that I was doing a good job hiding it from them, and that was the best thing for them. But it turned out that I was wrong. Later that evening, just sitting at a soccer game, the words to a story came to my mind, and I realized it was my story. So I wrote it down, and I was completely thunderstruck when my therapist thought that the little story that I wrote down should be shared with the world. She really encouraged me to publish it. and. After having a great experience telling my children about my depression, I realized that it could be a good tool for other families as well. I agree. I mean, your book is a useful resource for guiding a productive conversation about mental illness to help kids understand what their parents are going through. You know, it can be scary for kids to see their mother being reclusive and not understand what's going on or their emotional 
a lot of the times. And, you know, many times parents feel like they need to hide mental illness from their kids, like you were saying, like they might be better off if they didn't bring it to the forefront so it doesn't affect them in a negative way. But, you know, kids can usually sense when something's wrong and bringing clarity to the situation can be helpful. And educating kids about mental illness and what it looks like is a healthy approach, don't you think? Absolutely. I first learned this lesson when I was pregnant with my fifth child. I was violently ill at five weeks. I had hyperemesis. It was not garden variety morning sickness. I was so ill. My kids just watched me throw up all the time and otherwise be in bed. We didn't share why I was sick because we'd experienced miscarriage before and didn't want to traumatize our kids with that. So we didn't tell them what was happening. They just knew that mom was sick. Finally, about 10 weeks, we decided to tell our kids, and my oldest children were about seven and nine, and they were crying tears of joy and relief when we told them that I was pregnant because they thought I was dying. We thought we were protecting our kids from difficult information, but they had imaginations that ran wild. Wow. That's powerful. I mean, they're thinking you're dying. And I mean, that right there is a reason to be more transparent about these things, right? Because think what they're thinking of when they see a mother crying a lot or reclusive and not coming out. I mean, they're probably thinking worst case scenario, right? Absolutely. And young kids, if they have not been taught, or even older children, if they have not been taught about mental illness, then they don't know what they're looking at. You and I could look at a friend or a child and recognize depression symptoms. They didn't know that that's what it was. My worst depression occurred about a year after I was pregnant <laughs> and when my baby was young. And looking back, I realized I had a lot of the same behaviors. I was in bed all of the time. I was emotionally distraught. I couldn't engage with the family. So it took me a lot longer to talk about my depression because I was ashamed of it. I thought that I should be able to control how I was feeling. With pregnancy, I knew exactly what the problem was and I knew it was temporary, but I didn't see that in my depression at first. Yeah, I felt that when I had postpartum depression. I didn't realize I had that till later, actually. Brooke Shields at that time had just written a book about her. It's real and it's not something you can control. Yeah. And kids don't have a vocabulary for that unless you give it to them. Yeah. Because when I had postpartum, my daughter was two and a half and my son was a newborn. So they don't know what's happening. They just know I'm not around. They're like, what's going on? <laughs> so what are some ways mothers can speak, you know, because there's different ways you can speak to this with young children versus adolescent children versus adult children. Let's break that down a little bit. What are some ways mothers can speak to their young children? Okay. Well, the reason I wrote this book, I didn't know I was writing a book when I first wrote it, but it was to help with this very task. The book contains a story of a mother who has depression, and she has a young family, three kids, and the book shows the impact on her family. It shows her efforts to get help and to heal, and the book ends with a message of hope. I have to give a shout out to the illustrator, Nathan Allred, who did a phenomenal job of capturing the emotions that are associated with depression. There is a section where eight emotions are showcased. There's an image of the mother 
feeling this emotion and then colors representing the emotion, she experiences anger, frustration, hopelessness, embarrassment, guilt, disappointment. She feels ashamed and she feels worthless. Those are all things that I think anyone can relate to, even if they haven't experienced depression. Even young children can identify with these images. So a parent reading the book could say, I feel frustrated when I have depression. I feel like I want to control it. I can't believe it's happening again. When have you felt frustration in your life? And, you know, a toddler probably can't articulate these things, but surely a preschooler could say, well, I was frustrated when my brother wouldn't share the ball, or I was frustrated when I had to go to bed and turn off the TV. So you can bond over these shared emotions, even if there isn't the shared experience of depression. The book also has a glossary of terms, a discussion guide, and activities that work for lots of ages. Before the book even had pictures and I shared it with my family, I noticed that in months afterward, my son Gavin, who was about nine at the time, would approach me in the kitchen or at the park and say, so mom, how's your diagnosis going? Have you seen your therapist? (laughs) Wow. He wanted to talk about it. And I had given him a safe space to ask questions. And really, he helped me to normalize the experience. It was really hard for me to say the words depression, therapist, psychiatrist, medication, but he brought them up in conversation. And it made it so much easier for me to take my medicine in front of my children, to tell them I was leaving them with a babysitter so I could go talk with my therapist. Even young kids can use these words in conversation. If you don't buy my book, that's fine. (laughs) You can tell your own story, your own story of depression, and share your own feelings about what you're going through. Yeah, you're just normalizing it. You just totally normalize it. Yes, just talk about it. It's like having asthma or allergies. You see a doctor, you take medication, you have therapy, you have good days and bad days. There are lots of illnesses that are like that. And you can just make it be a normal part of your life. It's also important to tell your kids that they didn't cause it. It's not their fault. They don't need to feel guilt about how you feel. Yeah, because it's important that the kids don't feel like your condition was caused by them or something they did contributed in some way to your sadness. That's an important point. Absolutely. So what are some ways you can talk to more teenage, adolescent children who might feel a little more uncomfortable with that conversation than a young child who is more impressionable, you know? Yes. I think teenagers can be hard in some ways. It's also easier to talk to them in some ways because they have a better understanding of basic science and illnesses and how when you catch a cold, it's not your fault and things like that. But there are other things that... In addition to that basic conversation that you would have with kids that you need to include with older children or adult children, the first one is that mental illness can be genetic. And while you don't want to frighten your children about the possibility that they might inherit a mental illness, they need to be aware of warning signs. And you can also establish with them a baseline understanding of If you feel any of these feelings or see any of these symptoms, my door is open 
and you can talk to me about what you're going through. A related topic, you really can't have an inclusive conversation about depression with teens and adults without discussing suicide. And that is a hard word to say. It is a hard topic to discuss. But the ramifications are so devastating. If a teen feels like that or an adult feels like that's the only course of action that can stop the pain and suffering that they're experiencing. I received a bipolar 2 diagnosis when I was in my 30s. It was completely life-changing. I had kind of an identity crisis because I didn't know, looking back on my life, what experiences were authentic Heidi and which ones were manic Heidi and depressed Heidi. I had a really hard time figuring out who my true self was in the context of that illness. And I had a terrible depression after I found out that I had bipolar. There was such a stigma associated with that that exists to some extent in the world, but it was especially bad for me. Like I was my own worst critic. I was so hard on myself and things seemed so bleak and I just had a terrible depression. And we learned with over time by working with my doctor and various medications I've been on a total roller coaster of medications over the last 10 years. We learned that the way to control my deepest depressions was to eliminate all of my mania. And mania isn't completely fabulous all the time, but there are some really awesome perks, <laughs> especially to a person who experiences a lot of depression and feels so low and dragging and sad all the time. Mania is happy and energetic and productive. So that has been a little bit hard for me to adapt to, losing that piece of myself, but eliminating the lows has been so helpful because I don't have bouts of suicidal thoughts. I don't think that that's the only way out. Fortunately, I have always been able to come out of those episodes on the other side and I've been okay, but I've had a supportive network of friends and family who have lifted me and helped me through that. The key is talking about it. Well, adolescent suicide has gone off the charts. I mean, it is really skyrocketed. And the fact that you're bringing that up as an important conversation piece is critical. I mean, I've done two podcasts on suicide. And so Gordon Smith was a former senator of Oregon. His son committed suicide and he just wished he had noticed the signs more. You know, he'd wish he'd talked about with his son more. You know, he just wished so many things. It's so sad for the people who are left behind to be left for the rest of their lives wondering if they could have done something to prevent it. And in talking about stigma, there's kind of a new movement within those who are supporting suicide awareness or have experienced that in their families or among friends that the proper term now is died by suicide. Just like you would say, he died by a gunshot. He died by cancer. He died by an accident. Anything. So that it doesn't seem like the person who died committed a crime. Mm, that's interesting. I think it's an important step to take to recognize that people who end their lives in that way really are experiencing the deepest trauma, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't agree that it should have been that bad or whatever. 
that's where they were at that time. And I think that phrase grants those who have died a little bit of compassion and a little bit of grace. And we just don't know what's going on with that person. The change in language is just a little more kind. You know, I want to focus on change in language. That reminds me of a podcast I did with Jane Clayson Johnson about depression. She said, we need to stop calling it mental illness. We need to call it a brain illness, just like you have a heart illness or a lung illness or a kidney. It's a brain illness. Absolutely. If you broke your leg, would you lie on the floor and writhe in pain and refuse medical attention? Never, right. Of course not. Would it bless your family if, for you to have an untreated broken leg? Would it help you progress in life to have an untreated broken leg? It seems absurd to talk about a physical illness in that way. But we do that to ourselves with mental illness all the time. All the time. And I don't know. I just feel like I'm here to say mental illness is a physical illness. It is a physical illness. Talk about it and treat it like you would your diabetes or your low thyroid or your hormones. Things that you would immediately see a doctor for if you knew you had a problem. Yeah. If you had diabetes, you would take insulin. You wouldn't even think of not doing that. And would you be ashamed to tell someone you took insulin? No. Your pancreas is failing. That's the problem. (laughs) It's not that you as a human being are failing. And because mental illness is so tied to our emotions, it can seem like it's our fault. It can seem like we're doing something wrong. And while there are things that we can do to improve our situation and get resources and help with the things that will improve our lives, we just, I don't know, maybe I should say I, I struggle to take those steps because I saw my mental illness at first as a character flaw. Sure. Most people do. I mean, I love how Elder Holland, he gave a conference talk, I think a couple of years ago, where he talked about depression and the importance of getting help. It's not always this spiritual flaw, like you can't feel the spirit and you're doing something wrong in your life. That's why you have depression. You know, sometimes you just have a chemical imbalance. Sometimes you have a genetic predisposition and you will have to be on medication the rest of your life. Yep. I have had to accept that. And I take two medications for my bipolar and I take two medications for my thyroid. They're not related, but I'm not ashamed about taking the medication for my thyroid. Why would I be ashamed for taking medication for my brain illness? It's true. I shouldn't be ashamed. No one should be. No. I mean, I think that is the movement that's happening now. There is a movement that we are trying to eradicate the shame that totally surrounds depression, bipolar, anxiety. It's just, we're getting there. I agree. As things are shifting, I feel like this book is such a valuable resource for someone who says, okay, I'm ready to tell someone. I'm ready to get help. And there's a resource. There is not much literature for children about mental health and nothing that I have found that helps a parent teach a child about mental health. So it's a valuable tool to use in this discussion that society is having. It would be a valuable tool for teachers to share because 
they have an audience of these children that maybe are experiencing a depressed parent at home and they don't know what to do with it. It's so common, so pervasive that so many lives are touched by it. And there's a, an increased willingness to discuss it. I'm finding the school setting is especially hard to break into. I've had two principals say, I would be happy to have your book. These are my children's schools. Be happy to have your book in our library, but our teachers may not use it in their classrooms. It's an interesting dynamic. They're willing to talk to kids if kids approach the teachers and say, I have depression or my mother has depression, then they'll get them set up with resources and counseling and things. But if a kid doesn't have the vocabulary to say something like that, then there aren't resources for him. And the mature understanding. I mean, when you're in elementary school, you're not really thinking that way. <laughs> and you're not really going to advocate for yourself in that way. I did have a teacher invite me to come read the book to my daughter's class. So, oh, that's a good idea. It was great. There were 20 kids on the carpet and we read the book and showed the pictures and then opened it up for questions. And the first question from a little boy was, "Is this a real story?" I think they had learned about fact and fiction. And I said, "Yes, this is real. Depression is real." And he didn't want to say anything else. But I appreciated the question. This is real. And kids need to know. Well, how can mothers with depression enlist the help of other people inside and outside of their home to support their family during their low moments? Because it's probably really important to have a support network. I know when I had postpartum, if I didn't have this nanny that was living with me taking care of my kids, I don't know what I would have done. And that was so random because we moved from Utah to Boston. So my husband could go to business school. And I didn't want a nanny. She came from a big family without a lot of money. Her dad was like a seminary teacher, seven kids, and she wanted the opportunity. And so, you know, I was just trying to help her pay for BYU. You know, she needed kind of a gap year to raise money to pay for her education. So she just happened to come with us. I mean, it was definitely Heavenly Father's it saved me right there because that was not my intention at all. And she ended up being the perfect person to just love and nurture my kids during that time. And I just think what a blessing that was. Yes, that's great. I had similar heavenly intervention. Several years ago, I was called as the Relief Society president in my ward. And I don't think I would qualify myself as really mentally stable at the time of the call. <laughs> I was struggling. But Heavenly Father had given me a big heads up that the call was coming, so I was eager to accept and to serve. But balancing the needs of my mental health and everything going on at home with my family and the needs of my ward family was a real challenge. I was having a hard time. I decided to shore up my reserves and assign myself excellent visiting teachers <laughs> because I had the capacity to do that. When they came... They didn't say, let's sit on the couch and chat. They said, how can we help you? And I had to get used to saying how they could help me. They wouldn't just take no for an answer. So we cleaned my kitchen together. We folded laundry together. And I learned to never refuse help when it was offered. And then 
my stake relief society president invited me to visit with her one day and she asked what she could do for me and i said i need the number of a cheap cleaning lady and we both laughed and i went home the next day she emailed and said i want to be your cheap cleaning lady and my fee is 0 dollars and for 4 months she came to my house and she cleaned my floors and she cleaned my bathrooms. Now, listeners might be wondering where they can sign up for angels like mine. I really, it was a miraculous time. But I do believe that I received help because I asked for it. It would have been very easy for me to tell my visiting teachers, oh, just sit down. Let's just talk. And then they would leave and say, let us know if we can help you. And I would never call. It would have been very easy to end the interview with the Stake Relief Society president and say, oh, I'm fine. Things will be fine. Don't worry about me. But I asked for help in both of those situations. And that's hard for most people because I'm kind of laughing to myself because I'm Relief Society president right now and I assigned my minister to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know exactly who I'm assigning to myself. This person will be just such a little godsend and she has been. She's been great. But I think that's hard because it is hard to ask for help. I think most people feel very uncomfortable saying, yeah, you can do this and this for me. That'd be great. Most people will not do that. Right. The Relief Society president who preceded me kind of knew what I needed before I needed it in terms of getting help for my depression. I was pretty stubborn and didn't want to do anything. I was too embarrassed. But she sat on my couch and she held my hand while I called the doctor. She would not leave until I had an appointment. So that was help that I couldn't ask for. And this is kind of a message for people who are in a position to help. You know, sometimes we have phases of giving and other times we're receiving. And you kind of know where you are on that scale. But if you're in a position to give, to help, you can be the vehicle through which God grants miracles, through which he answers prayers. So if you're in that position, if you're listening and you are not depressed and you are able to help, look around, reach out, ask Heavenly Father who needs you. Chances are that person is not very far away. I also wanted to say something about caregivers. Being a spouse or a family member to someone who experiences mental illness is really hard. I just can't even say how much my husband supported our family when I could not function as the wife and mother that I wanted to be. And it was draining on him. And in the years after, when I had kind of recovered, we had some difficult conversations about how hard that had been. And he wouldn't change it, you know, he, would, he wouldn't choose to walk away if it happened again. But I just want to acknowledge that if you are that person, if your husband or your wife or your child is experiencing depression and you are responsible for their welfare or for picking up the pieces, hats off to you. <laughs> I'm just so grateful for people like you who are willing to serve in such a selfless way. And what is some advice for a caregiver? I mean, because that can be overwhelming. Especially if that caregiver doesn't have mental illness, so they can't totally relate to it, but they're trying to be supportive. Exactly. And it's hard to be supportive and loving and do everything that the person needs, but also make them take their meds <laughs> or go to a doctor 
or implement the things that they're learning in therapy. It's a challenge. I don't know that I have advice. I just want to acknowledge that it really is difficult and it is so desperately needed. Well, sometimes I think, you know, the partner might need counseling. Absolutely. Right? Because that can be a pretty heavy burden and they want to be supportive. They want to be there for their spouse. They can't really relate to it, you know, do the right thing. And so, you know, a good counselor could probably help navigate that for them a little better. Absolutely. I know of several situations where that's the case, where the caregiver is also in therapy. Yeah. And there's no shame in that either. Not at all. Just remember the broken leg. (laughs) You would never not treat a broken leg. That's right. I know. I like that. So how do you know when you're just having a rough patch or you really need professional help? You know, some people have situational depression or an acute situation happens that throws them into this deep depression and they're in it for a few months. They're like, well, do I have like chronic depression? Or maybe this is just like a situational thing based on what happened. Like how do people know when they really need professional help? Well, I have to reiterate that I am not a doctor and I am not a therapist, but there are lots of guidelines that you can just look up online. And there is a general consensus that if you experience most of these five symptoms on most days for a few weeks, you should see a doctor. The symptoms are one, you've lost interest in activities you used to love. You feel sad, empty, or hopeless. I skipped two, but now three, your weight and appetite have gone up or down. Four, you don't sleep well or you sleep too much. And five, you have little or no energy. So if that list describes you or someone you love, then it's time to talk to a doctor. So I'd like to wrap up with just asking you, is there anything else you'd like to share? Is there anything else we should know about? Where can they get your book? Okay. My book is available on Amazon.com and BN.com, which is Barnes & Noble's website. Yes, either of those locations. I would like to end with a thought about, it's hard to say. Some of you are praying for a miracle that your mental illness, whatever it is, will disappear, that you will become the normal person you used to be or some better version of what's happening right now. And I know that God hears those prayers. He sometimes answers them in ways that are not what you're asking for. (laughs) You just want to be cured. I know I did. But sometimes the blessing is the illness doesn't disappear, but you find a great therapist or a medication that's working. You still have hard days, but you have a friend who checks in on you regularly. I know that it's really hard to stay engaged with church when you can't feel the spirit and you feel like, what's in it for you? You go sit with your rowdy kids in sacrament meeting and then you go to Relief Society and you're just dead inside. I mean, I spent years doing that. And I want to offer the thought that God notices all of our efforts. I am so grateful that I kept reading the scriptures when I couldn't feel the Spirit, that I kept praying when it felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling, that I started attending the temple more frequently when I was depressed instead of less. In 2008, Elder Holland gave a CES fireside 
called Lessons from Liberty Jail. He discussed Joseph Smith's experience there, the wretched conditions, the harsh winter, the things the saints were suffering outside. And from that time, we have the scripture from Doctrine and Covenants 121 that says, Oh God, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed? I have felt like that. I'm sure a lot of people have felt like that. We have these poignant stories throughout the scriptures, people sharing their hard, hard things. And this is what Elder Holland had to say about Joseph Smith's experience. And I always cry when I read this quote. You can have sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experiences with the Lord in whatever situation you are in. Indeed, you can have sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experiences with the Lord in the most miserable experiences in your life, in the worst settings while enduring the most painful injustices when facing the most insurmountable odds and opposition you have ever faced. I believe that is true. I have experienced it. I'm so grateful that I stayed engaged with the church when I was feeling horrible for years. I am a better person because I did that, because I had my Liberty Jail, and I'm not convinced that it was my only one. I'm sure there will be other things, but I think Heavenly Father notices when we keep trying. We keep taking steps on the covenant path, even when we can't feel or see the benefits. They're still there. The world is still round, even if we don't believe it is. He's always there. I know that it's important for everyone to get help with their mental illness. There really is hope and things really do get better. That's beautifully said and really powerful. And sometimes it can feel like we're in our own Liberty jails, right? And there's no way out. (laughs) And that can be refining for sure. I just love that we had such an open and vulnerable conversation about this important topic today. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. If you would like to order Heidi Bartle's recent book titled When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Please follow us on the What Now Instagram at podcastwhatnow for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts. Positive readings and written reviews are always appreciated. Just subscribe to the podcast and scroll down the episodes and you'll see where you can leave a positive rating and written review. I invite you to help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.